It's Tuesday, October 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Cool Space News as a study has confirmed that NASA has discovered water on the sunny parts of the moon, and not just in the cold, shadowed areas. The water is not in puddles or icy patches, but rather it's embedded in glass created during impacts on the moon. So the next step is to figure out how to mine this water. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, joins us to talk about moon water. Next, we are one week out from election day. Tens of millions of people have already voted and Joe Biden continues to lead in the polls. Still, this race is not over and President Trump is keeping up his heavy campaign schedule, hitting multiple battleground states. And the Senate could also be in play for Democrats. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for what the candidate strategies are for the final week. Finally, looking ahead to Thanksgiving, there could be a glut of big turkeys this year. Farmers had to try and predict the demand and processing schedule for the bird during a pandemic and fear that there might not be enough small turkeys. Driving the worry, family gatherings could be smaller and people may be looking for protein alternatives. Laura Riley, business and food reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for too many fat turkeys. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Several studies have showed that water on the moon's surface is in its permanently shadowed craters. Today, we are announcing that, for the first time, water has been confirmed to be present on a sunlit surface of the moon. Joining us now is Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Miriam. Thanks so much for having me. wanted to talk about some cool space news, moon news specifically, uh, we're finding out that uh, a new study confirmed that their water can persist on the sunlit parts of the moon. Previously, we knew there was water in the in the dark, uh, dark and shadowy parts, uh, but they're saying that they found some water in the sunlit parts. Now, there's a lot of implications. There's a lot of limitations on this, though. Also, so Miriam, tell us what we're learning about this. So this is a particularly exciting finding for NASA, um, because if there is significant amounts of water sort of on the sunny parts of the moon, that basically means that NASA astronauts are going to be able to more easily access it, which is what you know they want. Because in order to have sort of a sustainable presence on the moon um, and the ability to sort of use it as kind of a gas station to jump off to other places like Mars or even farther into deep space, you you need to kind of be able to mine water from from the moon uh, to be able to you know create drinking water and rocket fuel and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, NASA has the Artemis program. They're trying to send astronauts back to the moon by 2024. So this could mean a lot for that. So tell us specifically though now what we're learning about the water that they found because my understanding is there was not a lot of water that they found, and it comes in a very different way. We're not talking about puddles of water or anything like that. That's right. Yeah, this is not sort of puddles or even, you know, caches of ice. What it's looking like is that it's actually uh, sort of discrete molecules of water that are kind of trapped in the lunar dust or maybe even, you know, kind of encased inside of of. Uh, glass that was created when meteorites slammed into the moon. So it's like a very, very kind of alien form of water, um, but one that scientists are sort of hopeful that they might eventually be able to figure out how to mine, although no one's totally sure how to do that yet. Uh, So what it is, if it's locked in this type of glass, it's going to take a lot more energy to extract this. What does a process like that look like? How do you mine water out of this glass or even from the soil if, if it's in there? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question and one that uh, I think a, a number of companies and NASA are sort of trying to figure out, like, just speaking from my reporting, like, people have a hard time mining on Earth. So if you translate that to somewhere like the moon, like this gets very sci-fi very quickly. So I think (laughs) that one of the main things that these companies are trying to figure out and what NASA is hoping for is that someone's going to figure out a way of actually being able to mine this stuff. But they still need a lot more research to even confirm that it's in the state that they think that it's in at this point. And what was the study uh, overall that was done? Like, how how did they actually find out that these molecules were out there? Because uh, I don't know if we have a probe that's sending back uh, samples right now or anything. So how did they actually discover this? So this was using um, a flying telescope uh, called SOFIA. Uh, it's on a, on a plane, actually. It's a repurposed plane that NASA uses in conjunction with a couple of other space agencies. And it's actually able to sort of fly up into the atmosphere and you can uh, see things that you can't necessarily even see with a probe. Like the way that they were able to get this signal was specific to the SOFIA telescope um, just because of the interference in the atmosphere. So it was able to kind of cut through that and see um, basically uh, the signal of water up there. And so what's the next steps now? If we're trying to get astronauts there by 2024, is this going to be added on to their list of you know exploration uh, things that they need to do? Or are we going to try to keep studying it with this uh, with the SOFIA observation? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the answer is kind of yes, <laughs> all of the above. Um, so NASA is definitely going to be interested in learning as much as they can about this water signal between now and 2024. So they have a probe called Viper that's going to go up to the moon at some point um, between now and the first human mission to sort of learn more about the state of water. And then, yeah, eventually, like once astronauts get up there, they will be looking for water signals in either the sunlit part or at their landing site, which is likely going to be in one of the poles. So it's going to be a really interesting time to kind of watch what happens with with this discovery. Definitely. Very cool stuff. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Remember, there is no way, beginning of the evening, there is no way for Donald Trump to get to 270, right? And they were right. I got to 306. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thanks for having me. We are one week out until Election Day. Millions of people have already voted early. Uh, There's, uh, according to the U.S. Elections Project, over 60 million have voted early so far. That number changes constantly. People are waiting in line for hours. But what are the candidates doing in the last week, in the run-up to Election Day? I know Joe Biden is trying to close any paths to victory for President Trump. In the last final days, he's running ads. President Trump, for himself, is visiting key battleground states and uh, multiple times over the weekend even. Uh, uh, So, Brett, what are we looking at? So it's really kind of a contrast in styles for the the final week here of the campaign. President Trump is doing what he has done dating back to his 2016 campaign, where he's hold these big rallies that pack hundreds and thousands of people into these airport hangars, which is what he sort of had to do for the pandemic is hold them outside. There's usually scarce mask usage and people are really packed in tight, but the president likes to have these big rallies. And then by contrast, Joe Biden has held events pretty infrequently, really. Um, 
every few days, basically, will give a speech or, or visit a state. So uh, President Trump's being really aggressive, while Vice President Biden is sort of kind of sticking to what's gotten him this far, which is kind of have a low-key campaign, give maybe a speech every couple of days, visit a couple of battlegrounds. Um, but, you know, President Trump seems to be the one who's a little more on defense. So we'll see if uh, if his strategy is enough to kind of turn the tide in his favor here. Yeah, well, Joe Biden is leading in a lot of battleground states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, um, or maybe not leading completely, but very close contest there. So for him, it's just about not making any mistakes. But some of the people that you've spoken to also said, you know, because there's a lot of people saying, oh, this is like 2016. It's going to be really close. President Trump can eke out a win there. A lot of people are saying don't really compare it to 2016 because this is different. We have an incumbent president this time, and this is all about Trump or not Trump. Absolutely. The president years ago, he was running against Hillary Clinton and both candidates did not have her ability ratings. Um, there was sort of uh, some of it was just, you know, Hillary Clinton's uh, decades in the public light led to a lot on her and a long track record that people attacked. And both candidates four years ago just weren't very popular. And this time the polls have really not changed much sort of what the president is up against. And at various times four years ago, tightened between Trump and Clinton. And this time around, Joe Biden has sort of had this somewhat steady lead. Um, now, it's closer in some battleground states, but the president is basically up against, A, the record that he's running on, and B, people have gotten a chance to see him govern and see what he would do in the White House. And so there aren't those voters necessarily who are saying, well, I'd like to give him a chance and see how it goes. A lot of those voters this time are saying, well... We've seen how he's going to govern and we see how he behaves in the Oval Office. And so they're basing their vote on that this time around. So certainly things are are different from four years ago. And some of that is working against the president this time. What is the strategy for President Trump? Because uh, lately, obviously, we've been hearing a lot about the Hunter Biden emails and his financial dealings. But that doesn't really seem to be sticking. Like I said, it's it's kind of late in the season already. Millions of people have already voted and made up their minds. So what is the strategy for the president? Yeah, it's a good point. The fact that so many people have voted already this close to Election Day makes it harder for the president to really find a a line of attack that sticks and that resonates and that will convince enough people with just about a week left until Election Day. He's tried, as you mentioned, the Hunter Biden attacks, uh, framing Joe Biden for this politician who's been in Washington for decades. And then there's, you know, attacks on Barack Obama, attacks on the media. Uh, So really, he's just kind of throwing a lot of things at the wall and seeing what sticks, uh, but essentially needs to kind of convince enough people in enough states with one of these lines of attack that that he deserves more years. One of the other interesting things, obviously, uh, the big one is the presidency, but uh, the Democrats, it seems like they will retain the House, maybe even uh, gain a few seats there. But the Senate uh, all of a sudden seems to be up for grabs in a lot of places. And it's going to be really close, but the Democrats could even flip control of the Senate. Definitely. That's, you know, sort of the the, the storyline. It's what will happen with the Senate in particular. And there's it's sort of, you know, the Senate especially is intertwined with the presidential race just because a lot of these vulnerable Republican candidates in places like Iowa and Georgia and Montana and Colorado and Maine, a lot of their fortunes seem to be tied pretty closely to how the president fares on election day. So, you know, the Democrats are kind of hoping that they can ride this wave of enthusiasm 
even if it's not for Joe Biden, even if it's a wave of, wave of enthusiasm against the president, they're hoping that that can translate to flipping control of the Senate. But, um, you know, they need to I would expect that they'll lose uh, their seat in Alabama and then they'll need to flip. I think it's five seats essentially to uh, to take control of the Senate. So it's going to be really close. Um, and so that will certainly the Senate especially will be an interesting one to watch. Well, it's all heating up one week to go and we'll see how it all plays out. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. The toms or the male turkeys are significantly bigger, so they may be 20 plus, even 30 pounds. So if most of us this year are going to be having immediate family only gatherings, there will be a lot more call for small turkeys and very little market probably for these big toms. Joining us now is Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Oh, happy to be here. I wanted to talk about Thanksgiving and the turkeys that everybody's going to be eating at that time. The pandemic has thrown pretty much everything for a loop when it comes to food production and uh, looking into the Thanksgiving holiday, turkey production and turkey farmers have not been spared this as well. There's actually a fear that turkey farmers have bred too many big birds. People are thinking the trend is going to be a lot of more smaller family gatherings. You're obviously going to need less turkey because of that. So maybe smaller birds. So there's so much that's going into this. Laura, tell us a little bit about what to expect for the holiday. So before anyone knew how this was going to play out and before we realized how long this was going to be, all of the American turkey farmers had to make the decision on their flocks for this year. So early in the spring, I mean, in big commercial ones, they may take 20, 18 to 20 weeks to mature. For a heritage breed, kind of a smaller boutique year fresh bird, that might be more like 26 or 28 weeks. So all of these decisions got made many months ago. And often it's about gender split. So a hen, a female turkey, is often harvested at around 16, 18 pounds. The toms or the male turkeys are significantly bigger. So they may be 20 plus, even 30 pounds. So if most of us this year are going to be having immediate family-only gatherings, there will be a lot more call for small turkeys and very little market probably for these big toms. And some of that is because food service. We, we, it's unlikely that there'll be a lot of restaurant. I mean, some of us do go out to dinner for Thanksgiving, and it's right. unlikely that a lot of those restaurants will be dine-in experiences this year. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing uh, from top to bottom has been changed. Even just regular turkey sales have been kind of erratic because people aren't buying the same amount of turkey breast, let's say, because college and other wholesale food service customers aren't buying those. And then you go beyond that, you know, state fairs, theme parks, renaissance festivals. That's where you get those huge turkey legs. Those sales have been kind of upended because those events just aren't happening. Sure. I thought that in my research that I would find that there was some warehouse, you know, in the Midwest with a mountain of frozen turkey legs. And I didn't find that. A lot of that ends up getting repurposed as grind, so as ground turkey. But it's much more cost intensive to take the meat off of a leg than it is the thigh. So a lot of that meat does make it into the system, but not as those kind of medieval turkey <laughs> legs that you gnaw on at the right. state fair. Exactly. But just as you kind of been saying, you know, the work that goes into it is different now. You know, it's not their normal thing. One of the uh, interesting things that you mentioned in your article is about how uh, Butterball, they're one of the largest producers of turkey products. They're still going to have their Butterball turkey hotline so people can call in the turkey talk line. 
and uh, they're expecting a lot more volume on that because they're thinking much more smaller gatherings. That's that many more people that need help. But also, I think something interesting is that it'll be a lot of first timers. And I don't mean just people in their 20s doing it for the first time. But, you know, think about all the people with the traditions of going to grandma's house, you know, a table of 20 people. For the first time, a lot of people are going to be doing this meal on their own. And that causes a lot of anxiety for people. You know, a turkey is a big, maybe it's something you only really encounter once a year in its whole form. So the turkey hotline is anticipating there'll be a lot of rookie calls, you know, on Thanksgiving morning saying, how do I thaw this thing? And there may be a real pivot for first timers towards other proteins that people are more comfortable with, you know, whether that's a chicken or a a roast of some kind. And then we have the rise of plant-based. I mean, that has really been a dramatic increase in terms of people's purchasing interest in the pandemic, whether that's because there have been so many COVID outbreaks at meat processing facilities, or it's just kind of this natural trajectory. Plant-based has had a real boon in this past seven months. Yeah. I mean, everything is kind of a disruptor this time around for Thanksgiving and these turkey farmers. So you spoke to a lot of farmers for this. What are they saying? How are they feeling going into the season? There's always a lot riding on it, but how are they feeling about this? For the smaller producers, the ones that command a real premium for their birds, the impediment or the scary thing that is yet to be known is what that's going to be like at slaughter. So these birds are still alive. They're still ambling around right now. And they're kind of around, unfortunately, around the corner from that one terrible bad day. But because there have been such horrible COVID outbreaks at meat processing facilities, a lot of these farmers are really trepidatious about what that's going to look like for them. So, you know, a lot of other proteins, whether you're talking about beef cattle or pigs or chickens, that's a 12-month cycle. There are those meat processing facilities going heavy duty all year long. Turkey is a much more kind of focused November, December harvest. So there could be real bottlenecks that affect their bottom line. Yeah. And then, you know, the prices, obviously, you know, we've been talking about them saying they might have too many big turkeys and obviously that's where they're going to be making money. But for a lot of these farmers that do these fresh turkeys, those are sold at more of a premium and they're just not really in the market to transition over to doing frozen turkeys. You know, this is where they've staked their livelihoods on. Yeah, the frozen turkeys command a much lower price and they don't have the infrastructure. They don't even have the ability to freeze these birds, right? So it's not an easy pivot from a fresh turkey environment to a frozen. And we're also probably going to see a lot more grocery stores offering finished meals, you know, kind of they'll do the roasting there on site or even off site. And, you know, you'll be buying cooked turkey by the pound or by the half, that kind of thing. And turkey farmers are wondering how that's going to impact them as well. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. My Thanksgivings are usually filled with going to multiple family members' houses and things like that. But the CDC is recommending having virtual Thanksgivings, staying home, you know, doing these smaller things. So it's going to be interesting to see how that is going to affect, uh, you know, all these uh, turkey sales. But we'll keep an eye out for all of that. Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me today. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Divers is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.